It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey listeners, if you love this Anthro Life and you want to support the show, Anchor.fm makes it super easy to do. They give you options to donate $1, $5, or $10 on a monthly basis. Whatever you choose to support us with, we're grateful to have you, and it's going to help us produce better and better content. And now, on to the show. And it's counting, it's 125 miles in Arizona. Hmm. And he, um, uh, he said that most of the people coming across the Heces today are not actually Mexican, and that's a complete stark contrast from 10 years ago. And... Very a lot of the things that we're seeing today are people who don't speak Spanish or not Mexican born. So there's this uptick in people who you don't, don't typically associate with immigration. And I think that particularly matters in the United States. I mean, obviously, this is where we're coming from, but like that there is this uh, misunderstanding, this, this non-understanding of who is actually migrating into the United States. Right. And then that's certainly like. I think includes a lack of understanding of why people are migrating, right? And so certainly there's a misunderstanding of a who and there's a misunderstanding of a why. Hey everybody, I want to welcome you to the fifth and final episode of the crossover series Culture Made, put on by the Santhro Life Podcast, the American Anthropological Association, and the Smithsonian Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage. My name is Adam Gamwell. I'm Ryan Collins. And I'm Leslie Walker. And we are incredibly excited to have you with us and, and to help close out this series. So uh, in this episode, we're going to dig into the questions of language and cultural sustainability and survival across borders. As we know, like today in, in 2019, 
that uh, migration is a hugely uh, you know, monumental force in many people's lives, in, across borders, in countries, um, languages, cultures, dress, clothing are moving across borders now. And this is partially why the Folklife Festival exists, right? We're trying to celebrate and show, uh, you know, both how people can assert their cultural uniqueness as well as the ways that we're the same. And that's often what you see when you have festivals and spaces that can celebrate uh, cultural diversity. But the picture isn't always super bright. We know there's many issues around migration in divisive comments and ideas. Um, you know, there's rising nationalist movements in certain countries. There's other you know, pushes to close borders. There can be xenophobia. Um, there could also be sort of migrant philia if you really you know, want to have migrants coming to your home or your country. Um, but it's a complex issue. Right. And this is an issue that's filled with uh, miscommunication, uh, different ideas which may or may not be accurate in relationship to borders. Some may be perceived, some may be experienced. And again, what is really good about this episode is it brings us to uh, the voices of those who are actually working with people coming across different borders. Uh, so we're getting different firsthand accounts of their lives, their histories, and uh, resilience. The great thing about the festival, it is, it's an exercise of um, cultural de democracy in which the cultural practitioners of the people that are performing, that are cooking, that are selling their, their artwork, that are interacting with audiences, that they get to speak for themselves. Um, they get to speak for each other. And they're doing this to a, pub to a public that more or less may not know anything about their culture beyond what is superficial and that the festival it encourages visitors to participate to learn to sing to dance um, and to eat traditional foods and to partake in this but also to really get a sense of where these these traditional cultures where they're grounded that they just don't sort of exist just for fanfare and a sense of um, carnival but they do have a meaning they have um, a setting within in the setting within people's lives that are rooted in an experience that they just for a moment for a day they're able to to witness they're able to embody and to get a large sense of what is this what is this connected to um and just showmanship but it's connected to an experience that speaks to larger things um that can help with educational processes um it can help energize thought uh, and it, it also can help safeguard, it can help safeguard these traditions that people have. You know, I think what's interesting in the kind of two pieces of conversation that we have on this episode uh, that are kind of different, like they kind of provide a, a slightly different take. One is, is you know, talking with the Maya League, which is like this organization whose, you know, purpose is to promote and preserve and transmit like the cosmovision and worldview and the culture and history in, in sort of the contributions of ancestors, they say, mm. um, from the Maya region in Central America. And part of the reason they're doing this is, you know, to assert one's own identity and group identity in, in a, you know, a world on the move in, in, in a area, an age and an era of increasing globalization and increasing violence against groups. Um, you know, there needs to be commitments to creating permanent links between sort of contemporary worlds and ancestral traditions to understand where, where people came from, you know, and, and sort of where they want to go with that. And, uh, you know, I think what's really quite interesting too with, with the Maya League and, and Maya in general, right, is this notion of wanting to sort of support and 
assert the diversity of the different groups that like make up the Maya. It's important for us to sort of recognize if you're not familiar with the name the Maya besides the Maya or Mayans, right? Or you might think of Maya ancient civilizations, right? Um, because of movies like Apocalypto, uh, you know, but realizing there's really quite a diversity of, of who the Maya were and are today. Exactly. And this is something really critical to think with. So there's this old proverb about the Maya that they sort of have uh, within the culture at large. Uh, and that's that the Maya vote with their feet. So there's this notion that when something isn't working right in a political system, a social order, uh, people have the option to get up and leave to find something else, but they carry the culture with them. Uh, and it's also very important to understand, as Adam is saying, how diverse Maya culture is. Uh, at the time of Spanish contact in the Yucatan Peninsula, the northern Yucatan Peninsula, there were at least 13 independent kingdoms of the Maya and as many as 16, mm. right? So these were groups that weren't exactly cohesively joined at all. And there has never been a collective Maya kingdom that's encompassed all the cultures of the Maya. And one of the issues could simply be reduced to language. I don't want to be reductionist when I say this, but mm. there are 29 current Mayan family languages spoken today. Wow. And there's a lot of diversity with that. I think that's important to note because even when we met with the Maya League, they noted that that they don't see themselves entirely as ethnically cohesive or monolithic. Like there is no monolithic stance on what Maya identity is. However, what has brought them together is certainly as um, folks have traveled from um, places in Central America, especially Guatemala to the United States, is that they have found each other and they do recognize um, that culturally and um, linguistically, there are similarities that have bind them together, especially when it comes to issues of persecution, um, certainly within um, their home countries and here in the United States. Thinking with what you just said, Leslie, it's good to reflect on how much uh, politics, uh, environment, and other social factors have impacted the different Maya peoples over the last quarter of a century or so. And so we can think about Guatemala with having the Civil War. And the Guatemalan Civil War lasted from 1960 to 1996. It's incredible how long this war lasted. But the worst of it was between 1981 and 1983 or 84, when we have the Maya genocide. And this is a period of time when 200,000 Maya or so uh, disappear. And I'm using air quotes when I say this. Uh, because we know that these individuals tended to be executed. Uh, and there are people today who are still working as forensic anthropologists trying to identify the people who were disappeared uh, during this time. So a lot of people who were fortunate enough to leave, they did. And they fled to places like the United States. They fled to Mexico. This also impacted uh, different relationships between uh, the Mexican state and Maya peoples in Mexico as well, because you had to deal with uh, this notion of fluidity between cultures and nobody really knowing how to restrict those boundaries. Uh, and of course, this is the same time when you have the Zapatista movement come into being as well, which was one of these early pan-Indigenous movements that was really spurred because of the Guatemalan Civil War in immigration uh, with the Maya. You know, the journalist uh, Paul Salopek was doing this incredible project called Out of Eden, where he's he's literally walking from, uh, you know, the the point of origin of Homo sapiens, you know, kind of moving out of 
uh, East Africa and kind of walking across the world. He's he's on his seventh year now. Actually, he just he just you know had the anniversary, uh, and. One of the things that he he just wrote about, which is quite interesting, is you know he's kind of seeing human migration at the boot level. He calls it right. So I, I appreciate your point of, of my avoiding with their feet. And one of the pieces that he said that that really struck me is that uh, what he realized by walking around and, and hanging out with people in India and Turkey and, and you know moving up through Africa and Kenya and Tanzania and stuff is that we are in a golden age of migration today, right? You know, we might be tracing the footsteps of humanity kind of moving out across across the planet, but like we have more migration today than we've ever had, you know, and that's not just because there's more people like people are moving across borders more and more, you know, for reasons of conflict, et cetera. And uh, or because they want to find a better life. Right. Or, or you know, whatever it might be. And so I think that if we if we sit with that for a minute, like that really tells us that there's something important about people's adaptability and needs to move across borders in search of goodness, in search of better lives. Recently, the New York Times did a special report on the migrant caravan, where they sent reporters down to speak with people who were coming to the U.S. Uh, And unfortunately, one of the things that the reporters were able to sort of garner was that people who are coming to the U.S. have no idea what the political situation is here or the current strong, unwelcoming feel that this country now has to immigrants, especially with uh, issues over our own border and protecting it through a perceived notion of violence rather than maintaining a recognition that there are people who are fleeing for reasons that are not coming for violence, coming to promote some sort of sense of violence, but they're coming because they're fleeing that. Or they may be dealing with environmental change that's happening in much starker ways than we tend to experience here. So our first speaker we're going to hear from today is uh, Maria Teresa Lopez, and she is one of the activists and a weaver that works with the Maya League. She is, you know, been working with with the League for for many years. One thing to point out too is that the, the Maya League actually began in Costa Rica in 1986 in a direct response to the notion of the Guatemalan Civil War, but then they ended up moving to the United States around 1990, uh, and so they're primarily based in Washington D.C. now. So Maria Teresa is one of the one of the elders of the program that spoke with us, and so she's a weaver. And one of the things that really struck us, you know, as we're, as we're thinking about the notion of migration and moving across borders, is that she uh, talks about the importance of clothing, right? You know, we might think of language as words spoken, right? But of course, we can very easily say, oh, of course, there's there's things like body language, right, and how you might hold yourself and posture. One of the things that we did not expect was her to talk so emphatically in, in, about the importance of clothing. Y entonces, este, así, Liga Maya también ha hecho varios libros este, so, sobre uh, la historia. The Mayan League uh, also has created a number of books about our more current history, um, so that we're able to maintain that um, and maintain that line, both within, for people within Guatemala and those who are in the di- diaspora. Um, so that they can connect with their cultural identity, their spirituality, um, their languages, uh, and their clothing. Um, what we wear aren't typical costumes. Those are our clothes. Um, and these are things that we're working to preserve. So that's the basics of what the Mayan League does. And I wanted to just give this opening um, to uh, then pass on to the others that are here with us. 
Sí, de hecho, tienes mucha razón, porque, como dije anteriormente... Y... So, also as part of the, the Maya League, we're going to hear from Alejandro Santiago González. That's his voice in the background. He's a Maya Ishil, and he kind of introduced us to the idea of how clothing is related to the survival, our cultural survival. Y durante el tiempo de la guerra en nuestro país, mm. a la gente, pues... During the war, we needed to be silent. Um, and the only way we really had to communicate with each other was through through our clothing. So the embroidery, um, the embroidery and, and the weavings and the designs were a way that we as indigenous people could communicate with each other um, during the dangerous uh, time of the war because the, they they tried to kill us in the area Ishil where I'm from. Uh, they wanted us to disappear. Uh, maybe you know a little bit about that history. Um, but the government wanted to kill us, but they couldn't. I'm here right now speaking with you all today. They tried to get us all, and they were not able to um, achieve that goal. And I hope to preserve my culture. I'm sharing it now with you all. Uh, one day I'd like to be able to share it with my children. I don't have any children yet, but when I do, I would like to be able to share my culture with them, my language, and I want them to feel proud to be um, to be Mayan. It's something that we carry in our blood. And again, like I said, they tried to make us disappear and they didn't manage to do it. They weren't able to do it. So I'm going to pass that on um, in, in the future. So normally our culture is characterized by, by traces. Um, and the Mayan women have uh, been able to um, preserve more of the culture, particularly through their clothing. Um, our woven clothing designs um, can represent different moments of our history, different feelings. And during the armed conflict, women, uh, even if they were displaced, uh, many of them kept, um, kept up the practice of weaving. Um, so you'll notice that a lot of our um, weavings look a lot like um, the weavings of, of other indigenous cultures, um, such as Mexico, because of um, our displacement to, to those areas. Uh, and for example, um, there are many different um, symbols in the clothing. So for example, uh, the color red um, represents the blood of people killed in the, the uh, armed conflict, but also it represents the struggle of, of women to survive and, uh, and keep striving. Um, unfortunately, many of the men had to leave their native territories, um, but when many of the women uh, either stayed behind or didn't go as far and um, were able to maintain some of these uh, cultural traditions. Solo para agregar un poco en cuanto a lo que mencionó Mercedes, eh, lo que también, bueno, en mi región, porque yo también soy indígena y hablo Ishil, en las regiones donde yo vengo, eh, eh, la vestimenta que nuestra gente usa es... I just wanted to add a little bueno, bit to what Mercedes just said. Uh, in my region in particular, um, the clothing we, we used to wear before the Civil War were mainly dark colors like blue and black. Uh, but after the conflict, and as Mercedes mentioned, many people were killed, uh, many people were displaced, uh, including me. My father tells me that we had to hide um, to, to avoid, um, avoid the violence. And um, 
once the war was over, people came back to um, the towns and began making their clothing again. But all of the colors that we used to use, the blue and the black, that was left behind. And what used to be um, in that color scheme is now red, uh, like Mercedes said, because of the people who were um, killed in the conflict. Uh, but there's also many figures and designs in our clothing, such as uh, trees, flowers, animals. Um, and the trees and flowers represent nature. The um, animals, particularly, there's the, a bird figure that is the Quetzal, which is our national bird. Um, and a lot of people don't, uh, don't understand the meanings. Our, our clothing speaks for itself. But a lot of people look at it and say, oh, how pretty. Uh, but they don't know what the deeper meaning is. El color café es el color de nosotros y es el color también de la madre tierra. And the color brown is the color of um, us, of our skin, and also of the mother earth. Y eso lo llevamos en la cara de cada persona. Hmm. And that's what we see in the face of every person. Tenemos dos ojos, dos uh -huh. oídos, dos ventanas de la nariz y una boca. Uh -huh. Nose, mouth, yep. Entonces por eso decimos la matemática. And that is why we talk about math. Y entonces, este, entonces cuando hacemos este, manojitos de hilo en cada... Porque yo soy tejedora. When we line up our, our threads to, to weave, we put 20, because I'm a weaver. So we put 20, uh, kind of each bunch, each patch here. And that also represents a person. Una persona, 10 dedos uh -huh. y 10 de los pies. Because a person has 10 fingers and 10 toes. Este, entonces, por eso, en el tejido expresamos la matemática. Y ese es el único que ha quedado este, como una escritura para... El, nosotros las mayas, mujeres mayas, porque es el único que no pudieron este, borrar de todo este las masacres que hicieron hace mucho tiempo. And that's why I say that the weaving is an expression of, of math and that is the one form of writing that they weren't able to destroy um, and that was the one form of writing that the women were able to preserve through their weavings. Entonces, en nuestra ropa expresamos la vida de nuestra madre tierra, la vida de la madre naturaleza a través de los dibujos de nuestra ropa. So it's through our weavings that we represent Mother Earth, Mother Nature. O sea, a través de nuestra ropa mm -hmm. through our clothing, expresamos los dibujos. And through our clothing we're able to express um, our culture. With the Maya League, what they present to us is that it's important to understand that clothing is language and that clothing is a social message. Um, we often hear that I'm going to make a, a fashion statement and it truly is that it is a statement. It's a, a prevailing mode of expression. And we acknowledge that, that our everyday articles of clothing, they carry cultural and social meanings and that 
we change when we change our clothes we change our our view of the world and how the the world views us and you know that's a quote that's from Virginia Woolf in Orlando and that with this knowledge it becomes an engine that drives it drives the fashion industry but it also drives what we broadcast to the world and American fashion designer Rachel Zoe she states that style is the way that we say who we are without having to speak certainly with the Miley it is the code it is the knowledge that is physically and figuratively embroidered into their clothes that humans must know the code in order to recognize what the message is being transmitted and they've used this as a way of cultural sustainability but also cultural survival i think what's so powerful about this too is that clothing you know as as Marie Therese says like is this form of of writing that could not be extinguished right because as long as there were people to make the weaving and to wear them um, that language was there and uh, you know, but then realizing too that it's this is why it's so important to keep those codes, the code breakers, as it were, right? The weavers to be able to tell those stories is such an important piece of the puzzle. So we're going to turn over to hear from Emily Sokoloff, and she is a folklorist and visual artist. She's an activist, and she has. I've uh, been doing a lot of work in detention centers, specifically in South Texas, um, which is one of the three ICE or the Immigration Control Enforcement Agencies uh, in the United States. And so there's kind of these three main detention centers that, that asylum seekers and, and refugees and immigrants get sent to when they cross the border. My name is Emily Sokolov. I'm a folklorist by training, and I have run um, arts and culture nonprofits. I've I've worked particularly in the Mexican immigrant community. Uh, I've been an academic. I'm currently living in Texas as a visiting scholar at the University of Texas, and I'm spending a day at a week and um, some weekends often also doing immigration-related work both with the undocumented population that is living and residing in the Austin, the greater Austin area, and with um, women in particular who are seeking asylum in the United States, predominantly women that are entering the United States uh, through, through Mexico from Central America. Although interestingly enough, uh, because we, um, I've had the need to call for translators. We've had Armenians. Mm. Uh, we've had Romani um, from Romania. Uh, interestingly enough, talking about migration, we have had people that have actually come from um, places like Armenia and uh, Romania and come through Mexico to actually get into the United States seeking political asylum. Um, the policy in the United States now is... Um, expedited removal, um, and the Trump administration has made it a goal to um, to fully enforce uh, to the full letter of the law 
uh, statutes that have been established much earlier, but were not enforced to the mm. degree that they're being currently enforced. So they're taking people that are in the country for much longer periods of time at a much greater distance from the border itself, whereas prior it was people that had sort of recently arrived and were right near the border. Now it's really become quite extensive, as you're aware. Yeah. I wanted to add that there are three major facilities in the United States that house, um, that, that are specifically built for family detention. We have centers that are for single women, centers for single men, centers for unaccompanied minors, mm. and also these three facilities. How the changes now in, and, and the new uh, sort of commitment to separate, separating families has affected these family detention centers is something I'm not fully aware of because I'm, I'm obviously I'm here in yeah. in DC and and I don't it takes a while for these enforcements to actually trickle down to the detained population, hmm. uh, but there are two in Texas on the border and one in Berks. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. County in Pennsylvania, these family detention centers. Right. And just to say, I know that I just want to get this out and of then course, please, please, please ask. Um, the two in Texas are actually run by private prison corporations, whereas the one in Berks is, is, is run by the state. So one of the projects that we're seeing that the Maya League does is they help bring interpreters in multiple languages, like Ryan mentioned, someone that be Kiche Maya, for example, um, often other languages that are indigenous to the Americas that are not Spanish, right? Because Spanish is not indigenous to the, the Americas. And so, uh, you know, one of the most startling pieces that we find in conversation that that perhaps a lot of Americans may not know or not realize is that when we have migrants coming in from the southern border of the U.S. through Mexico, that many of them do not even speak Spanish. Right? There's sort of this generalized assumption that, that everybody speaks Spanish since they're coming from South America, but that is incorrect, right? I mean, for one, minimally, if you come from Brazil, you speak Portuguese. But then much more so that, you know, if you're in Peru or the Andes, you might speak Quechua or Aymara. Or if you're in Honduras or Nicaragua or Mexico, you might speak one of the 20, 29, 29 of dialects of Maya. And so that's not a small group of languages. 
No, and so to assume that that somehow everybody's going to also speak Spanish is like saying we assume that anybody in the United States is also going to speak a second language. You know, you all speak Klingon, which we don't, obviously, right? And actually, only a select few speak Klingon. But so, you know, the kind of the question is like, why do we assume that besides like, you know, what I would say are frustrating racist or like, you know, localist, essentialist notions of like, why doesn't everybody speak English when they come to the United States? There's not this other side of saying, why don't you speak Spanish? It's like, you don't even, you don't even consider that, right? And in this case, what is wrong with speaking an indigenous language? Nothing, right? But it, this is the question of like when language and people that speak that language get moved out of place, we see that change and that difference much more starkly. Juanita Cabrera Lopez, executive director of the Maya League. La Liga Maya está desde hace mucho tiempo trabajando en el rescate cultural, en los idiomas, el conocimiento. This project is really important um, and I just wanted to point out that it's sad that um, the original peoples of this continent uh, are needing this, this service. We're needing to do this for people who are indigenous to this continent and the situation should be different. So the network of interpreters um, is organizing to help people with the situation in the border, um, but we need a lot of resources. There's just not enough resources. We lack uh, the number of interpreters that we need for the number of languages that are needed. We're just a few people helping many. Um, and Personally, uh, I, I know this is a really much needed service because I've done translating myself and I have seen people become more trusting. They feel safer by me being there. So a lot of times before I start interpreting, I will see the person that I'll be interpreting for and they're, they're very sad. Um, but once I come in and I say, hi, how you doing in their language, I see the smile spread across their face. So I get really emotional and that is my motivation to, to keep, keep doing this. But it's not easy. Um, but we're, um, yeah, it's just, it's not easy to do, but we've got to keep, we've got to keep doing it because it's so needed. That's Mercedes M. Sechaklan, one of the Maya Kiche representatives of the Maya League. So in closing, I just wanted to mention a few, a few more things. Um, it's, it's, even though we have the drive, it's hard for us to be indigenous interpreters because we're not, all of us, operating in the most optimal conditions in this country. So it's not easy always to, to be an interpreter. Um, nothing guarantees that uh, we ourselves will be secure in, in doing this for other people. Um, sometimes the work is in uh, places that we are not comfortable going into. Uh, maybe we don't have an ID to get into some of the facilities. Um, so that's one barrier. And another thing is that uh, we also, as indigenous interpreters, uh, living in this country, we need to be able to uh, sustain ourselves, right? Because a lot of times we do have the drive to do this, but we don't have the resources, for example, to go where we need to be to work with a person directly. So one of the solutions is to do interpretation by the phone. 
but that isn't an adequate way to do things uh, because you can't see a person's face. We feel a lot better speaking with someone when we can see their face um, and be able to say what we need to say seeing the person. Um, and that's one of the barriers that we have to doing interpretation uh, in the most uh, optimal way. Uh, another issue is that, you know, there's not always the economic resources, the money to uh, do things the way we want. Again, that's why we end up doing things by phone a lot because we don't have the money or time or resources to travel. Um, but then there's the problem that even if we're able to do interpretation remotely, the person on the other end of the line that's also doing another part of the interpretation does not accurately reflect what we say because as indigenous interpreters, we also give a personal touch to what we're interpreting to the way we speak to people and that doesn't come through with the rest of the interpretation that gets done. So there's a lot of uh, other barriers to being an indigenous interpreter that I wanted to, to mention in closing. So I think one of the key pieces to reflect on here is that we, we see both um, the team from the Maya League and, and Emily and, and, um, and her colleague doing work in the detention centers around notions of translation, right? And so in this case, we are specifically talking about spoken language. Um, I think what's, what's really important that Alejandro and Mercedes are pointing out too is, is that all, they're not only translating Spanish, not only helping people translate between Spanish and English, but they are talking about Quiche Maya or Mam Maya and these other indigenous languages. Uh, and this is, I think, one of the, one of the like, uh, you know, key startling pieces for um, certainly the like general conversation in the United States about migration is that, you know, there's this sort of generalized and incorrect idea that everybody coming from the southern border into the U.S. would speak Spanish, right? But even as Emily points out, we have people coming from Armenia, right? And they come into Mexico seeking political asylum because it's actually easier to go that way through Mexico to the U.S. versus just trying to go from Armenia to the U.S. And that matters, you know, but I think certainly just taking a moment to pause on that idea that this is not all Spanish-speaking language people coming in, and certainly even those coming from Guatemala and Mexico themselves may not speak that much Spanish. People are coming from Mexico itself. Yeah. Uh, there, I've, I've had people um, that are from Michoacan or the areas with the highest sort of narco activity mm -hmm. in Mexico. We have a lot of Brazilians. We have Haitians. So this this is obviously. Um, I mean, even though the countries in the Northern Triangle of Central America are predominating, mm -hmm. and that fluctuates. Um, all of these things fluctuate with what's actually going on and the time it takes them to reach borders and continue along their way. Because there may be women that, for instance, stop and work as domestics uh, uh, as, they, yeah. as they make this, this uh, trek. And there are women that experience additional serious traumatic experiences also in the process of migrating. Mm. Um, so it's a complex road and the means of traveling are complex. I began to go with a friend of mine who's an anthropologist. She and I had both worked for the Smithsonian as researchers in 91 and as presenters in 93. 
when we did the Borderlands. Mm. So we were actually involved on the research end of getting the festival uh, created. And I learned an enormous amount from her and from the experience of doing the work. So for instance, for me, the first interview we prepare them for is called the credible fear or reasonable fear interview. That's the first step. If they pass the credible fear interview, which they have with an immigration official, then they are released either under a bond with bail or with an electronic ankle monitor. Those are the two things. Proxemics and kinesics are very important. So mm. I would tell the women, and when I talk to them, I say, look, look at me in the eyes. Because I would tell them how my parents would always say when we as kids, uh, me and my three younger brothers, would say something, my mother would say, look me in the eyes. That was her way of knowing I was telling the truth. So yeah. I've sort of taken that kind of um, approach and said to them, I want you to look me in the eyes. I don't want you to speak with your mouth covered. That is sort of almost a universal suggestion that you have something to hide. Yeah. I don't want you to... Um, uh, there are various things that I'll tell them in terms yeah. of presentation of self because, and that's one of the things that I don't think an attorney, you know, attorneys are much more fact-based. It's like, okay, what was the testimony? Yeah. But I will say that you have to be extremely sensitive because very often um, you'll find that a woman in her first interview is ashamed to say something mm. and that might be just the thing that would tip the scales with the customs, uh, with the um, the ICE officer, who would who would then give them the, f the the freedom to do the first step, which is basically when they leave the detention center, if they're found positive, and they don't, if they're found negative, they can appeal and still leave the detention center. But if they're given an immediate positive, they're allowed to leave the facility, and they basically get sent to wherever the person who is sponsoring them in this country lives. Huh. And that may not be a documented person. Yeah. So they may, and when they tell me where they're headed, there's a great difference if they tell me they have a friend in New York City from telling me that they have a friend somewhere in an area that might be less um, uh, predisposed to welcome the immigrant. So mm -hmm. that's a pot shot. We don't know where their family member or partner or friend who's willing to say, look, it's horrible in Honduras. I know that. You've seen something that is the is no human being should have to see, mm. an act of violence, of butchery, and come, I'll help you get off your feet. So a lot of women will leave. They'll go somewhere. And that, in a way, is the phase that scares me the most because then they think they've been liberated from something, but it really isn't to now the belly of the beast because now they have to, now they have to keep their appointments with ICE. They have to keep their appointments with their lawyer. They have to file a case before they can work. So they're not in the country illegally. They're mm -hmm. not really in an undocumented status. In fact, they're very easily tracked yeah. if they have an ankle monitor, clearly. Why is it that you feel that the news media and politicians and policymakers focus intensely on the idea of jobs um, and Central Americans coming to the U.S. and speaking to jobs and not discussing all the other um, the ethnic populations and other people from um, different nationalities and have different languages? Um, why isn't that being why isn't that being discussed in the news? 
Well, I mean, I would say that the jobs issue is a kind of dog whistle. It, it enables you to, to say something in a very coded way. So you make it about economics. And one of the things, you know, as a folklorist, basically, when we as social scientists, people that are trained in eliciting narrative and and listening sympathetically, identifying, you know, the empathy factor, a lot of times the attorneys will, we they will say to us, well, you, you know how to get, you know, you, you can really help this person. When I counsel them, I have to warn them about two things. You cannot appear to be an economic migrant, which goes right to your point, mm. and you cannot appear to be wanting to reunite a family. I say to them, my grandparents, three of them, um, well, they were all immigrants. They came in different times, but they came for a better life. They came for a better future for their children or for their future children. But you can't say that now because then you will be, you'll be, you'll be assumed to be an economic migrant. And that's a dirty word. You can't say, I want the American dream or whatever facet of that you know about. And you can't say, my husband is here and he's been sending us money. And because he sends us money and he's here as an undocumented person, the gangs in my area think I have money and they have taken over my house. They have repeatedly robbed me. They're charging me a monthly renta or, you know, uh, it's rent or sort of collaboration, financial for collaboration. Partly they're victimizing me because I have a family member who then in a machista culture cannot support me and be the macho that's keeping the, uh, these other predatory individuals, mostly men, away. So you have this cycle that repeats, right? Emily was also one of the uh, main coordinators working with the Catalonia program at the festival. But she was there because she's worked with the Smithsonian before as, as a folklorist and activist, and you know, was primarily helping, you know, coordinating different events and, and you know, people walking around and helping people be integrated. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's quite interesting, you know, because we can see the relationship of, of sort of coordination work with what she's doing here in detention centers. And I say this because it sounds like this episode is both very much the Smithsonian Folklife Festival, but it goes way beyond it too, right? But it, yeah. really, it really points out, I think, that some of like these deep, larger connections to the work of both the Smithsonian and what the Folklife Festival and, and, and sort of Folklife Studies uh, can be about, right? Um, and in this case, like study, I really mean into the realm of activism and work. Uh, and, and, you know, we're thinking about clothing, we're thinking about posture and, and the idea of what we might call folklore, whether it's traditions and mythologies, as you said, right? And like why 20 threads might mean a human, you know, in, in Maya stitching and weaving and stuff. Uh, but I, I don't know, it's so interesting too, because it's like, this is the conversations that come out of the festival. These are, this is the kind of work that like spins in and through uh, having the kind of festival and, and, and sort of a folklife festival. And I don't know. I think there's something really to that. I think there's something really important to see through this that you're getting at, Adam. And that's that there's a sheer complexity of culture that you otherwise wouldn't be able to approach. And there's something about the way that this festival is able to allow people to see those distinctions. I think 
in U.S. culture right now, especially in our media, there's this tendency to portray the world in very black and white patterns. And that's been around for a long time, at least since the Cold War and probably longer. Uh, to have something that can help us break through that binary is so important for seeing the sheer diversity of culture within our own country and that exists in a way that's completely entangled with our world is so important. We have this idea that we've gone from language and survival, you know, in clothing into the need of translation and borders, how strange and dire the situation is there to end this, this really notion of like, there's such a misunderstanding we know by, you know, the actual diversity of migrants coming in the United States. And on top of that, what we're receiving as citizens, U.S. citizens or people living in the U.S. from the media, right? right. That it's somehow all an economic issue. You know, one of the things that I think is most poignant to reflect upon uh, that Emily said uh, was that you cannot say as a migrant that my husband or my spouse, my partner works here and has been working here, may even be a citizen, but that's not going to guarantee you access. And this is really critical to think about in relationship to the uh, political climate in the U.S. today, where people are becoming more and more outraged by the separation of families at the border entry. So there's this seeming incentivization to keep families separate, which goes against what is an outcry in the U.S. So there's a little bit of a paradox here. Mm. Well, that's an interesting point. And, and you're right. It, it's like, yeah, it's not, not that the, the families have incentives to be apart, but they have, they have right. an incentive to not discuss they're here for families, right? And that, yeah, I think I think you're right. There's a deep irony there, right? And as Emily says, like that that keeps this cycle going, right? Of this, this sort of false narrative of why people are even coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not because, you know, not because migrants want to lie, but this is such an interesting piece. Like this is the sort of like how they talk to, to people that are here. It's like this, this is how the U.S. system is working for and against you as a migrant that, you know, an asylum seeker, if you're at this detention center. And here are ways, here are strategies uh, of, of you know, things to say and, and ways to be. And like, that's what a challenge, you know, I, I, it's hard, like it's sort of just thinking like what a challenge, you know, like you've already come thousands of miles perhaps right. from violence you know, trying to reunite with your family only to get to this place, to be put in jail essentially. Yes. And then have to, you know, act the specific way to even get out. And I mean, let's just uh, compound that too, because it's not just the mileage distance, but it's the familial separation that may mm. have been even a decade or more. So we're talking about time, uh, your social group, your kin, uh, the physical distance, language barriers, and also the trauma itself of the border. It's not an easy thing to cross, whether you do this legally or illegally. It's a treacherous area. And I mean, Jason DeLeon's book, The Land of Open Graves, is mm-hmm. talking about the, how there is effectively a natural border with the U.S. just because crossing the desert itself is so treacherous that it's an effective wall in and of itself. Mm. I think it's also key to... No, and also to refer back to Emily's earlier conversation about credible fear. So using credible fear as a way of identifying these individuals that are crossing the border as refugees opposed to economic migrants to seek asylum. So within the U.S., there are laws that permit individuals to come into this country um, based on asylum. 
um, where they're able to demonstrate this credible fear of that if they are returned to their home country, um, that things will happen to them, that um, by proving credible fear that they cannot be deported from the United States until the person's asylum case is processed. And that there are two, there are two instances in which people can, they can prove credible fear. There's the credible fear of persecution and the credible fear of um, torture. And what Emily is stating is that um, the credible fear of persecution, it simply means that a person stands a good chance of um, establishing asylum in this country, but, but it doesn't, it doesn't immediately grant them that. More so, what she's speaking to is that you almost have to prove the credible fear of torture, that there is a significant possibility that um, you, if, if being returned to your country, that you will die um, for whatever circumstances, that these, these people, they have to bend the truth almost to, to have these, these border patrol agents, these um, immigration officers, you almost have to appeal to their sympathy and their mercy. Um, though that may not necessarily be true, but that's what's going to get them in this country and that's what's going to grant them asylum. You know, Emily's not telling people how to lie, right? She's not saying you need to lie to do this, but it's more like if you're working with migrants in this case, like it is about like recognizing that we are in this case, trying to give a human-centered approach to making migration right. work. Like you're here for a reason to survive for humanitarian reasons. Um, but the system only has a certain vocabulary that one can speak to, right? And so, uh, I, I don't know. So I guess, again, I just want to, you know, think through and emphasize that point. Like, this isn't about teaching somebody to lie or, or to be false, right? It's that you have to use what you can in the system so the system will understand you so that one can survive. And I think it's a very different thing. Right. Because as Leslie was pointing out, it's not that there aren't, and that there should be some legal um, realities that would help people coming for asylum. But to get that asylum, to be even verified for that, it may require that you have to say something else. So the social reality and the legal realities don't always match up in the way that you would hope, which further complicates this entire process and makes it that much more tragic. You know, that we, and Leslie, if you're not here, like, this is, we didn't expect to find these kinds of conversations there, right? You know, coming, and this has been, like, an incredible series to move through um, with you guys and thinking about these conversations that we had and, and sort of put them into these narrative formats. And yeah, the, I think there really is, you know, I, I see the festival differently. You know? Again, like, I, you know, I had heard of the Smithsonian Folklife Festival, and I'm really glad I got to go, and it was fun to participate, and, like, you know, it was cool to dress up in the gigantes that we get, you know, the giant puppets, and... Uh, you know, to talk with so many fashion designers and, and weavers and textile makers and musicians and artists and, um, you know, but then, then like, this is the surprise conversations that came out of the, the festival, I think, you know, these, these are what we didn't expect when we, we showed up. And that's, I think, why the, the Folklife Festival uh, and the kind of space that, that is provided there, um, that Smithsonian provides is so important, right? Like, there's this kind of dialogue that, that, that was there and the Maya League was there as, as ambassadors, you know? Like, this isn't a festival in terms of a, a carnival, right? It has carnivalesque elements, but it's really this space of celebrating, uh, you know, cultural ways of being, right? And that's why the idea of, like, weaving is so cool, and the, the idea of language as being part of that was, 
uh, I think something quite powerful. And then even talking with Emily and as one of like the main coordinators for the Catalonia program, uh, you know, this is the kind of other side of her work. And, you know, this is what you don't always see when you're like walking around trying an Armenian wine, which is cool. Uh, but this is the, these, these are the people that undergird this work, you know, and that, that to me, I think speaks to the resounding success and like the importance of this kind of uh, gathering. Translation in this episode was done by Sarah, who is married to Alejandro Santiago Gonzalez, who's also speaking on behalf of the Maya League. At the time of recording, she was a grad student at American University, and we are very thankful to have her help working through these interviews. Hey everyone, this is Adam Gamwell, the ethnographer and producer of the Culture Made series. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for joining us on this five-part experimental journey to the heart of the Smithsonian Folklife Festival. Leslie Walker and myself set out with a recorder, a few microphones, some notebooks, and names of people we hoped would talk with us. Turns out we got more than we could have imagined. Over nine hours of audio, but also timeless wisdom from practitioners and artists, designers, translators, and activists from across the world. Though this wraps up the five-episode arc we set out to make, we've still got a ton of content and stories to share. We'll have more interviews that didn't make it into the episodes. Plus, we'll release some of the uncut, full interviews with folks like the Crafts of African fashion curator Diana Baird Ndaye and activist Emily Sokoloff. Plus, we're going to have an entire Spanish-language episode featuring interviews with the Maya League. So on behalf of Ryan Collins and myself, Adam Gamwell of The Santhro Life and Leslie Walker, I want to give a huge thanks to the Folklife curator Sojin Kim, Latinx curator Amalia Cordova, Smithsonian intern Ali Smith, the director of Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage Michael Atwood Mason, and all of the artists, designers, weavers, dancers, and activists, and all the people who took the time to talk with us during the festival and share their stories. If you'd like to hear more of this kind of programming, please let us know. You can drop us a line at thisanthrolife at gmail.com, or you can reach me at adam at missinglink.studio. Interviews for Culture Made were undertaken by Leslie Walker and me, Adam Gamwell. Hosting duties have been shared by Leslie Walker, Adam Gamwell, and Ryan Collins. And this series has been engineered and produced by Adam Gamwell out of Missing Link Studios. You can check out more of our programming at missinglink.studio. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay culture curious. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.